KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, a comic novel about Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Who would have thought it was possible? Now Francine Prose has written one. It's called The Vixen, and it's terrific. Also, Ella Taylor will talk about Passing, the new film about a black woman passing for white in New York City in the 1920s. It's on Netflix now. But first, politics. Now that the bipartisan infrastructure bill has passed, we anxiously await Biden's Build Back Better bill coming up in the House maybe next week, we hope. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, to recap uh, where we stand at this point, uh, last weekend, the Progressive Caucus reluctantly agreed to abandon their insistence that both of these bills come up together. They made a deal where the people we're calling the moderates agreed to vote on the Build Back Better bill as soon as cost estimates came in from the Congressional Budget Office and that they would make only technical changes based on what the CBO says about the cost. But of course, there's a lot of anxiety in progressive circles about what could go wrong. A spokesman for Bernie Sanders, Mike Casca, was quoted in the New York Times saying, it's obvious where this is headed. House moderates are going to use the CBO score, no matter what it says, to vote against the Build Back Better bill. On the other hand, we have Pramila Jayapal, who's very smart, talented, and knows what she's doing, saying we have a deal. We also have the squad, AOC, Cori Bush, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, refusing to vote for the deal because they don't trust the moderates. Where, where do you stand on this? Well, the moderates, five of the moderates, said two things in the letter uh, drafted by uh, New Jersey Congress member Josh Gottheimer last week. They did say that about the CBO bill, but they also pledged to vote on the Build Back Better bill no later than the week of November 15th, which is, in other words, next week. Only they didn't say vote on, they said vote for. Vote for. You, That's if different. The, if you read the text of the bill, you know, I think they're going to get the bill through the House next week. The Senate, you know, uh, again, Mr. Manchin is sort of in a, his own little universe and insists on schlepping all of the rest of us into it. Uh, now, we had word that he had committed to President Biden that he would support a bill for which was basically set at $1.75 trillion. Whether he actually adheres to that commitment is, is a little unclear. He's using something very real, which is the heightened rate of inflation. And today we got figures for October that showed the rate of inflation was higher in October than at any time in the last uh, 30 years as a uh, reason maybe to start dismantling the bill. And here's, here's sort of where I'm at on this. The bill has been largely advocated for by proponents for all of the various benefits it will award to uh, Americans who are uh, sadly in need of uh, some of these very basic provisions. It hasn't been advocated for because it will also actually reduce their cost of living. 
And I think Excellent. it's time we began looking at that, that that needs to be some of the focus of what we're looking at, because it would certainly reduce what seniors have to pay out of pocket on drug expenses from six, a ceiling of $6,000 to a ceiling of $2,000 a year. It will reduce the very high cost of childcare, which is a real burden to uh, you know, most uh, American families by starting up the universal pre-K, it will go in that direction as well for American families with children under the age of five. And in, in a host of other provisions, it will, uh, it will basically do the same. And so I think we need to be focusing, among other things, on not only the benefits of the bill, but it's sort of anti-inflationary essence. Uh, so I, I, I think that is the way to respond to the criticisms that Joe Manchin is beginning to ploy against the bill. Excellent. Well, maybe we should spend a, a minute on what is in Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill. It is the largest public works bill since Ike created the interstate highway system when you and I were young kids. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, billions of dollars for uh, all the states in California. We are in California. I have the list from Gavin Newsom of what California expects to receive. $25 billion for highways, $4 billion for bridges, $9 billion to improve public transportation. This is all over five years. $3.5 billion for water infrastructure. 1.5 billion for airports, 400 million for electric vehicle charging stations all over the place, 100 million to expand broadband coverage. This is this is big. It's it yes, as as Joe Biden once said about the Affordable Care Act, it's a big effing deal. And he <laughs> he was not nowhere near so delicate as uh, as I just was. Thank you. Uh, it, it is. I mean, you know, I think if we look for analogies, uh, certainly the Eisenhower uh, Interstate Highway System is one. Certainly Roosevelt's Public Works Administration, which uh, essentially authorized the, the, the construction of innumerable public buildings and dams and roads and airports and what have you, uh, would be another, uh, another example of that, uh, not, not to gainsay one of the holdout moderates in the House, Abigail Spanberger's suggestion that voters didn't elect Biden because they wanted FDR. Uh, I would think Democrats pretty much always want FDR. Yes. And if you took away the partisan <clears throat> cloud that comes with FDR, I think Republicans uh, actually like uh, airports that, uh, that work and roads that aren't pockmarked with potholes and so on. So Bridges uh, that aren't falling down, speaking as a person who grew up in Minneapolis. There you go. We don't want that either. Uh, and even Republicans, no less than Democrats, no less than Abigail Spanberger, occasionally have to cross real world bridges. Uh, <laughs> yes. so, 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 so there you have it. No, and, and you know, uh, in, in the Senate, 19 Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, voted for this. Republicans have been okay with uh, uh, with infrastructure. So 19 Republicans in the Senate voted for this infrastructure bill. The House Republicans are completely different. They they are enforcing party discipline to vote against it. 
how do you explain the difference between the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans on well, this? Well, for one thing, business, and particularly big business, is a huge backer of, uh, of infrastructure. So that is one of the traditional reasons why Republicans usually support it. And it's at the level of uh, big business that uh, Senate Republicans get most of uh, their donations, uh, their campaign contributions. Less so in the House. I mean, you, you, you know, A, you get it from, uh, you know, some of your, your local businesses, which uh, may not appreciate just, you know, who paved the road that their customers take to get to their, shore, to get to their store. Also, you know, I mean, the, the, the Republican intransigence uh, against reality itself has increased uh, even since the, the Senate passed this. And uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House leader, has basically said you can't vote for anything that it's not just anything that, you know, Joe Biden can sign with a smile on his face. It's anything that Donald Trump opposes. And of course, Trump opposes it for a number of reasons, mainly because Biden got an infrastructure bill through the Congress. Whereas he, Trump, supposedly the businessman who can close a deal, had four years and flopped. It made just completely an insufficient efforts. And it's not even clear he knew how to make uh, the efforts, even if they still remained insufficient. Trump said, I don't want this. And uh, McCarthy takes his lead from Trump, as do you know the vast majority of House Republicans who are in safe districts, they're not going to lose to Democrats. Their concern is they're going to be primaried by some Trumpian morons to their right. Uh, And hence the position of the House, where only 13 of the House Republicans uh, voted for the bill. So the Democrats have passed the biggest infrastructure bill in half a century. The Democrats in the House will pass some version of Build Back Better, maybe, probably next week. So where does this leave the Republicans? We got a preview last week at one of my favorite political events, the Republican Jewish Coalition annual meeting in Las Vegas, where Republican big wigs and potential presidential candidates speak to right-wing Jews. There's only one speaker who dared to differ with Trump, Chris Christie, who said the shocking words, winning campaigns are campaigns that look forward, not backwards, and that the Republicans need a plan for tomorrow, not a grievance about yesterday. Only person who said that, Chris Christie. Most of the talk was about the future belongs to the Republicans is the lesson of Virginia, but even Ted Cruz declined to say whether Trump should be their candidate in 2024. Of course, that's because Ted Cruz himself wants to be the candidate, but could it be that he is hinting at a truth when he suggests that if Trump were to run again, he would lose again? After all, in 2020, he lost by 7 million votes as the incumbent. Could it be Ted Cruz is implicitly telling the truth about Trump? I think in a word, yes. One of the lessons of Virginia was the way in which the victorious Republican candidate, Glenn Youngkin, managed to sort of distance himself from Trump, but not in a way that uh, cost him any Trump voters. It was kind of, in, in that regard, it was something of a 
brilliant campaign as well as a cynical racist you name it but uh, but, yes. but cynical and racist are normal republican that you know you don't have to be a trumpian uh, right. to you know to go there and i think one one thing that republicans sort of politically sentient republicans are looking at is how young can did it and how he did it getting trump's endorsement but somehow escaping trump's embrace and uh, I, I think that's the kind of thought process that we saw from Ted Cruz. And, and I think a lot of Republican elected officials and political consultants think that, that, that Ted Cruz, the implication of what Ted Cruz said is right. Whether, however, the Republican base will share those same uh, fears about the limits of Trump's popularity is not at all clear. Uh, the Republican base, having believed everything that's been said on Fox and, and social media, is, is still besotted by Trump. And we'll, that could be a real problem for the Republicans winning the White House in 2024. Let's talk about class struggle in America, okay? Oh boy. We have an official national crisis over the lack of truck drivers, especially here in LA to haul all the containers arriving from China to the distribution centers in the Inland Empire for Amazon and Walmart and Costco. Holiday shopping is in deep trouble as a result. Is there any way to get more people to drive those big trucks? Well, specifically the trucks that take the uh, imported goods that come into the LA and Long Beach harbors out to the warehouses in the Inland Empire, where they are sorted and then trucked on to a gazillion, you know, to thousands of stores west of the Mississippi. Uh, and there are other such centers, you know, in, in Illinois and in, in the east. Those truckers, according to a survey from, I believe, the UC Berkeley Labor Center, make on average $28,000 a year. Mm. And gee, why is it that we don't have enough truckers willing to drive around endlessly, see not a hell of a lot of their family and, and so on for $28,000 a year? In a sense, the deregulation of trucking and the breaking of the national contract, which actually covered more than half of the truckers in the U.S. Uh, in 1965, when uh, Jimmy Hoffa got 800 trucking companies to sign on to it, at that point, trucking was a pretty well-paying job. Well, it ain't anymore, and uh, this, this is a problem in the supply chain. Apparently, you have to pay people in the supply chain if you want to get what you want. <laughs> well, the other news about working-class struggle in America is comes from Buffalo, where Starbucks workers are voting on a union starting this week. This is a big deal because none of the 9,000 corporate-owned Starbucks stores in the United States are unionized. Initially, three stores filed for union elections in late August, and on Monday of this week, three more joined them. The company went crazy over this. The founder, Howard Schultz, went to Buffalo. They closed every Starbucks in the city of Buffalo uh, so that workers could come to hear him give a speech, a speech where he talked about, is it the Holocaust? Have I got this right? He noted that only a small portion of prisoners in German concentration camps received blankets, but they often shared them with fellow prisoners. And he says, that's what we have tried to do at Starbucks. If working at Starbucks is equivalent to being in a concentration camp, <laughs> I would think that's grounds enough for unionization. 
We have to think back and remember that Howard Schultz once contemplated running for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2019, uh, which gives you just some sense of how detached even supposedly semi-enlightened CEOs actually are. <laughs> well, the forward reported on this story, their lead was, it's a pretty reliable rule of thumb that if you're thinking about comparing something to the Holocaust, you should instead do literally anything else. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I suppose Howard Schultz is too big a deal for the normal Starbucks PR people to vet what he says. And that's another uh, reason why uh, big deal CEOs probably should just be uh, thrown out. <laughs> Harold Meyerson on Big Deal CEOs and the Holocaust. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. A comic novel about Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Who'd have thought it was possible? But now Francine Prose has written one. It's called The Vixen, and it's terrific. During her 50-year career, she's published 30 books, along with reams of essays, reviews, columns on all kinds of topics. Anne Frank, Peggy Guggenheim, Caravaggio, and Bacon. That's what the New York Times says. So it's a pleasure to say, Francine Prose, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Well, in The Vixen, who is our protagonist, Simon Putnam? And more important, who is his mother? <laughs> uh, well, Simon is a um, guy from Brooklyn, from Coney Island, who's just graduated from Harvard. And uh, as happens with so many people, myself included, he's graduated from college and has no idea what he's supposed to do with the rest of his life. So he's returned home to live with his parents in their apartment. Uh, his mother, his mother knew Ethel Rosenberg as a, as a young, as a girl, as did my mother. But I should also add that Simon loves his mother. I mean, his love for his mother and his respect for his parents is one of the things that drives the book. And, and really, it wasn't until I started talking about the book with people that I realized how rare that is in fiction. I mean, people have been saying to me, I just can't think of another novel where someone, a young person likes to spend time with his parents. <laughs> I went, okay. <laughs> All right. I had no idea that was so strange, but that's certainly what happens. In any case, he goes home to their apartment in Coney Island, and the novel begins on the night of the Rosenberg execution. And they're watching, he and his mother and father uh, are watching television and the reports of the execution from the execution are being are interspersed with 50 sitcoms with I Love Lucy and the Ricky and David, the Ozzie and Harriet show, you know, with, with this sort of bogus 50s sitcom families being interspersed with Simon's real family. And then, of course, with the Rosenberg family being horribly disrupted at that moment. So so these three, at least three families are all there are all kind of uh, intersecting at that moment. Did you say that your mother was a childhood friend of Ethel Rosenberg, just like Simon? Yeah, she. they went to uh, Seward Park High School together. They all grew up on the Lower East Side. And, and by, my mother, all through her 
mercifully long life, had three friends who were her childhood friends, and they all knew Ethel. They all, and I asked them about it, and they were sort of, um, you know, her her execution was a tragedy to them as it was to, to most people who were alive at that time. But but I think they were also slightly competitive with Ethel as as young people. I mean, she sang <laughs> she sang the Star Spangled Banner for the high school auditorium, the high school auditorium. So, and they were very ambitious, my mother and her friends. And in fact, all these girls, I mean, they were first, first generation American girls. Their families had immigrated from Eastern Europe, most of them. And they really have, were strivers. So, so the idea, first of all, that someone would be talented was more talented than they were was <laughs> anathema. And then, and then also the fact that that Ethel's politics, that she was a communist, and they were, I think, so so intent on making the American dream their dream and on getting ahead in America, that I I, I think it. I don't think it made a lot of sense to them, although they, you know, it wasn't as if they didn't have a social conscience, they did. But but the idea that, that you wouldn't, or that let's say that your respect for American democracy was limited in some ways was, was quite hard for them to understand. So in your novel, Simon gets a job at a publishing firm editing the slush pile, the unsolicited manuscripts, and then he is given his first novel to edit and uh, what is its title? The Vixen, the Patriot, and the Fanatic. You know, I sort of like the earlier title for the novel, A Simple Box of Jello. <laughs> but but that takes some explaining. Yeah, well, well, of course, you know, the main piece of prosecutorial evidence in the Rosenberg case, or one of the main pieces, was uh, this jello box, which was cut into a kind of uh, jigsaw pattern. And supposedly the way the two Russian spies recognized each other was that these two halves of the jello box fit together like puzzle pieces. I mean, this was so patently absurd from the beginning, <laughs> the idea that this would happen. I mean, since the novels come out, I've thought about the Cold War and, way, and in some ways I was in the middle of it when I was writing. I mean, it was sort of circling around me and, and the same, but I thought about it and and it's it's only recently occurred to me how much theater was involved? I mean, this, the gel, you know, the so-called jello box or the made-up jello box or whatever was just a piece of theater, as was uh, many of the real details of these espionage cases, because ultimately nothing happened. We didn't go to war with Russia. We were not, there was no nuclear annihilation. If they got the A-bomb, they already had the A-bomb. So uh, it was just a kind of shadow play. I mean, I guess it's a bit of a, spoiler, but part of the novel becomes about the CIA and and what the CIA was doing during all no this. Spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. Okay. <laughs> well, just off the subject of the novel, one of the things that seems clear to me is that this Cold War was partly a distraction from the things that were actually going on, from the, the various nefarious things that our government was doing all over the world. And the Russians were doing. I mean, the Russians were killing mass numbers of their own people. And we were making sure that mass numbers of other people got killed in other countries in which we were interfering. So the novel in your novel, that's The Vixen, The Patriot, and The Fanatic, is about a commie spy who's a sexpot and a nympho and who has really big breasts. Is that a fair description? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Don't you love the fact that nympho is no longer... 
<laughs> no longer a current word in the English language. Sexpot, I'm not so sure. But yeah, she's she's this, I mean, the whole book is this kind of lurid, uh, bodice-ripping thriller, that, which Simon is assigned to edit. But, but again, it's not so different from a number of books that were popular in the 50s. I mean, these historical, big historical romances that I read. I read tons of them because uh, because I didn't know they weren't great books. I just didn't know. No one had bothered to tell me that they weren't so-called, quote-unquote, literature. Uh, you have what I think is the first sex scene in literature set at Coney Island on a ride called the Terror Tomb. The moans and blood-curdling screams come not from our two protagonists, but from the corpses and the ghosts that pop up out of the dark. Thank you for that. <laughs> Anytime. Well, you know, I i mean, I've written about this as, as an essay, nonfiction. That was one of the traumas of my childhood. I mean, not sex in the, in the dark ride, but the fact that I, my brother and I were taken on the dark ride when I was about, I don't know, seven or something. And, 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 and just... Incidentally, those riots apparently lasted 30 minutes. So there was enough time to have sex on the dark ride, if that's what you're going to do. And and when I came home from Coney Island, I, I didn't sleep for a week. And finally, I told my mother what had happened. And, and it just so happens that there's a very beautiful Dan Arbus photo of the interior of that very same dark ride, of the tracks and and the monsters, which in her photo, you realize how how goofy and primitive they are but when you're a kid nothing could be more you know the sound of the screams the clanking chains so i now have a print of that photograph on my wall so i can uh <laughs> i can revisit the terror anytime i want to and i looked at it when i was writing the novel i looked at it many times just for a sense of what it might have been like so simon's uh, employer the people publishing uh, this terrible book is a respectable firm, Landry, Landry and Bartlett, publishers of literary fiction, biographies, and poetry. Uh, is this based on a real company? Well, I've been asked several times, actually, if it's based on Farrar Strauss, which it isn't. It actually is not based on Farrar Strauss, although they were my publisher briefly. My first publisher was Athenaeum. My first novel came out in 1973, 73, I think, at Athenaeum, and, um, which no longer exists. But but the office in the novel is very closely based on the office at Athenaeum. So, so when I needed the architecture of the office in my mind to be able to write it, I saw those kind of rabbit warrens of, of halls. And then at the end, there was the office of Pat Knopf, who was the uh, head of Athenaeum at that time. And I, and I was taken there as a, I was a kid. I was in my 20s, early mid-20s, to his baronial office, which was like the office in the novel. I mean, <laughs> you know, hunting dog pictures on the wall. I mean, very much the British gentleman's club. And uh, and he said to me, Pat Knopf said to me, you didn't write this whole book all by yourself, did you? Which was, you know, at that point, you could say those things to young women and not lose your job. Oof, oof right, oof. But and what was I going to say? I said, oh, yes, yes, I did. So, uh, but that was the atmosphere. That was certainly the atmosphere of, of publishing in the 70s, which Basically, was the 50s, was still the 50s. So the Rosenbergs were executed in 1953 for espionage. Simon's mother thinks the Rosenbergs were innocent. What does Simon think? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't know. And in fact, the question of the Rosenbergs' guilt or innocence or what they did and what they didn't do, as I was writing the novel, was, was 
seemed to me to be irrelevant to what I was doing. And, and, and in some ways irrelevant to Simon. I mean, his connection to the case is through his mother. So his reluctance to work on this uh, hideous novel is partly because he feels that it's a betrayal of Ethel and, and Julius, but more than that, because he feels that it's a betrayal of his mother and his parents and, and all the ideals that his family have and what his family believes in. So it's, it's much more about what his mother thinks than yeah. about what he thinks or about what I think. So just for the record, I'm speaking now as a professional historian. We know that uh, Julius was a spy, but he did not give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. The, the Russians had much more qualified nuclear scientists uh, helping them uh, with that. And Ethel, the evidence is clear, was innocent, was framed by the FBI. Her brother, David Greenglass, testified that Ethel typed the documents, but many years later, he told the New York Times writer Sam Roberts that he didn't remember whether Ethel typed the documents and his testimony was a lie. And Sam Roberts' book had another shocker. He interviewed William P. Rogers, who was deputy attorney general at the time of the execution. Later, uh, he was secretary of state for Nixon. And he had an amazing concession uh, about Ethel. He said, quote, she called our bluff, close quote. Uh, they hadn't really wanted to execute Ethel. They hoped she would persuade Julius to cooperate in naming other people. The Rosenbergs, as we know, didn't cooperate. Um, that's the history. But, of course, our man Simon doesn't know about uh, David Greenglass and, and, and doesn't know she called our bluff. What he does know is what Ethel told their lawyer after the death sentence. You will see to it that our names are kept bright and unsullied by lies. He can't stop thinking about that. Yeah, and that really was was in my mind all the way through the writing of the book. I mean, the, that idea of some kind of truth or some kind of integrity or some kind of loyalty to historical fact or to the victims, in, or the, certainly the victim in this case, Ethel, uh, is is foremost in Simon's mind as it was in mine. I mean, and because honestly, writing a comic novel about the Rosenbergs was not an easy thing to persuade myself that I was going to do. I mean, it was really, once I realized what was happening, it's like, oh, my God. So so keeping that line uppermost in my mind gave me a kind of courage because I thought, well, I'm in some ways trying to do what uh, she asked her lawyer to do. Poor lawyer who outlived them by less than a year. The New York Times reports that you had wanted to write a novel about the Rosenbergs for 10 years and that you had 14 false starts on it. Were all 14 funny? They were awful. No, you know what they were, actually? They were, I didn't have the first chapter. The prologue, the first the first chapter where the family's watching uh, TV was essential. It was, a, it, it was a thing that made the rest of the book possible. And I didn't have that. So I kept starting the book with what's now the first real chapter, which is Simon's point of view about his leaving college and so on and so on. And it just felt wooden and it felt wrong and it didn't it just wasn't working so those 14 versions which i started numbering after a while were varying attempts to get simon's voice on the page and then once i had that prologue i found that i could do it so you know it's a mystery i mean why you can't do something and can't do something and can't do something then suddenly you can do something really is a mystery but in this case it seemed clear to me what turned it what made it possible 
One more thing. You teach in a prison, the Eastern Correctional Facility, through the Bard College Prison Initiative. You are a writing faculty at Bard. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, well, it is a wonderful program. It's an incredible program. And, and in fact, there's a there's a four-hour documentary called College Behind Bars that aired on PBS. That's fantastic that anyone should watch it. And in general, anyone who has a few extra dollars should give it to the Bard Prison Initiative. It's a college program for, for incarcerated people in, in New York State and a number of different prisons. And it's really like going to Bard. I mean, they have to, the students have to do the same things that Bard students have to do. They have to have it write a, a complicated senior project. There's a freshman, uh, I mean, a first year seminar that they have to participate in. And the two times I've done it this past semester and in the past, I, it was part of the BA seminar. So they were literature classes. I mean, I don't, in fact, teach writing, although that's part of it, but they're literature classes. So the first time I did it, we did Great Expectations. We did Dickens's Great Expectations, which I chose because there's a convict at the center of the novel. I mean, Magwitch, the escape of Magwitch is what begins the novel. And then and then Pip's own moral dilemmas are played out against the background of the and and my students got it. And the students are incredible. The students are the most motivated and hardworking. And this semester was was especially difficult because of course we couldn't go into the prisons because mm-hmm. because there was COVID. And in, and the classes, the school kept being shut down for several weeks at a time because there was COVID raging through the prison. So I was doing the class on speakerphone. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't see my students. They couldn't see me. And um, the acoustics were not great. So they could hear me perfectly well, but I couldn't hear them unless they came right up to the speaker. I know that's that's how I thought it was going to be. And I kept thinking, well, this is impossible. Anything is better than nothing. Whatever I do is better than not doing anything. But in fact, it was transcendent. It was really extraordinary because the students were so great. And also, I just, there was something, I mean, I'm trying to write about it now, but but there was something of the confessional about it because when you can't see the person you're talking to. So I just talked about literature and about these texts that we were reading and, and the students got the texts. I mean, there was a wide range and really got it. And they were, they participated as much as they could given the impossibly difficult circumstances. And it wound up being a great experience for me. And I hope for them, they wrote papers as if, it was a normal time. I mean, it was complicated because they couldn't always get access even to the computers because the, everything was shut down and they were in quarantine. But they managed to write papers. They sent me through a complicated system papers. And um, and I was very glad that I did it. Francine Prose, her irresistible new novel, The Vixen, is about a guy starting out in publishing whose first job is editing a terrible novel where Ethel Rosenberg is a sex pot and a spy. Francine Prose. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Ella Taylor, our film and TV critic. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org, among other places. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. 
Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Well, I'm really interested in this new film, Passing, the one about a black woman who passes for white in New York City in the 1920s. The movie opened on Netflix on Wednesday. It's also in a couple of theaters at the Landmark in West LA on Pico at the Bay in Pacific Palisades. I have not seen it yet, but you have. So please tell us about Passing. Well, I will say that it's this is a film that um, everybody's going to watch on Netflix, but it really should be seen on a big screen because it's extremely lovely to look at. It's uh, adapted from a novel, tw 1929 novel by Nella Larson, um, and by none other than Rebecca Hall, who is the doctor, of, the daughter of Sir Peter Hall, um, the dramaturge and also a well-known actress in her own right. This is her debut feature, and in many ways, it's extremely accomplished. Um, it's set in New York in the 1920s during the Harlem Renaissance, or Renaissance, as we say, um, and uh, it opens. Uh, it's shot in a very beautiful kind of silvery black and white, uh, which I think is strategic. And I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. Um, but it opens on a young black bourgeoise um, named Irene, who's played by the um, black actress Tessa Top Thompson, who is just everywhere these days in independent movies and uh, action movies and so on. She's very talented. She um, is going shopping, looks like for Christmas, I'm not sure. And she strays into white New York, but nobody seems to get that she's black. So they treat her with the same deference that they treat uh, other dowagers. Um, who are shopping uh, as well. So uh, she's a little bit thrown by this. It's a very, it can't be Christmas. It's a very hot day. Um, and she goes to a very upper crust tea shop to cool off and, and to see what it's like to pass um, because she actually lives with in Harlem with um, her, her husband, who's played by Andre Holland and who's a doctor. Um, and there she is fanning herself and cooling off and nobody takes a blind bit of notice um, as she gets the usual kind of deference from waiters that she's not used to. When suddenly she sees another woman who uh, at another table who all, is also taking tea alone. And it isn't too long before they recognize each other as childhood friends. The other woman is played by uh, Ruth Neger, a very wonderful Ethiopian Irish actress wow. um, who has been nominated for many awards, but uh, in particular for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe for the film Loving about an inter interracial couple. She was, always, she was really wonderful. Um, so uh, they live on opposite sides of the color line because it turns out that Claire, the woman she meets, is married to a white man played by Alexander Skarsgård, who doesn't actually know that she's black. Um, and he, of course, is a, a racist. So she is living an incredibly wealthy, he's a banker, she's living an incredibly wealthy existence. 
um, but one that is severely compromised by her having to be vigilant and lie all the time. She won't allow any African-American maids uh, in her house because she's pretty sure correctly that they would recognize her immediately. So she, she, it turns out that despite her brave stance, she's actually very lonely um, because of all the covering up that she has to do. And she inserts herself into Irene's life uh, and her husband's life uh, because she misses Harlem and she misses the relationship they once had. There's an extra layer here of the suggestion of a former sexual relationship between the two women. But uh, that sounds very plot heavy. And in fact, this is not that kind of movie at all. It's very slow. It's very beautiful. As I said, it's shot in black, black and white and has a lovely haunting score. And most of it, and it's kind of a character study and a relationship study between these two women that then turns into a study of how much you actually have to give up to become a rich white woman when you come from a poor black neighborhood. So it's a story of a, a certain kind of self-erasure, I guess. The, the more she hangs out with Irene, who has a moderately happy life in Harlem, as she says, I've got everything I wanted. She's got two kids. Um, uh, as it, it goes on, um, it turns out that Claire has not only lost um, perhaps her natural sexuality, but also her moral compass and that the um, she's become tarnished by having to pass the whole time. Uh, so she's lost also her own sense of herself uh, and is willing to betray not only others and specifically Irene, but also herself in a thousand ways. Um, that's a story that I think has been told before, but it's it's told with great um, subtlety, I think, and, and finesse by Rebecca Hall. This is her first movie. She comes from a theatrical uh, family, and I think that um, uh, she has studied very well at the people at the the foot of the people that she's met. Well, let's um, let's talk a little bit more about Re Rebecca Hall. She was uh, I mean, I know her as the actor in Woody Allen's sunny film Vicky, Vicky Cristina Barcelona where she was Vicky the sensible and and conventional one playing opposite Scarlett Johansson the spontaneous and passionate one, she received a Golden Globe nomination for Vicky Cristina Barcelona. This year, I looked her up. She has starred in Godzilla versus King Kong, where she's an anthropological linguist who can communicate with Kong, and she persuades him to go fight Godzilla and save humanity. That film grossed $467 million worldwide and set a record on HBO Max. Passing, as you say, is the first film she's directed, sort of a different kind of undertaking. 
Well, she is certainly a formidable intellect. Um, most of her career has been in small, independent prestige movies. And she's a wonderful actress. She's got these incredibly soulful, dark eyes. She's very tall and imposing. Uh, and she's also extremely versatile as an actress. And uh, things bode very well for her, I think, also as a, as a director. One of the problems of the movie is that there is no convincing anybody that either of these two woman, women could pass as white. They both I, I agree completely. Thank yeah. you for saying that. <laughs> they both look black, and that is kind of a, a... And certainly, you know, the character, Claire, who's played by Ruth Negga, he could never have an intimate relationship with a husband who doesn't realize that she's black. I mean, it's just not possible looking as she does. They're both gorgeous in their different ways, but they don't convince and that keeps getting in the way. I think that by choosing two very accomplished actresses, she's given up also a, a certain amount of verisimilitude. I can see why she's done this. Um, but it does, in, for, for my uh, money, it really does keep getting in the way of the story because it's very, which is a, you know, uh, it's not exactly short, shot in a naturalistic style. It's a very literary kind of movie, as one critic remarked. <clears throat> it's style. Um, is designed, there's some wonderful scenes of Harlem um, culture. Uh, and, and so it's a very artistic, arty kind of movie. But nonetheless, we are supposed to believe in these characters. And I think that that's, uh, you know, they really kept throwing me off in the movie. Um, that said, I think it's a wonderful portrait Um of one woman who uh, really corrupts the other because Irene's life, because going from relative contentment, um, is thrown for a loop and she begins to doubt, uh, you know, the edifice and the constructs of her own life to a pathological degree that ends in tragedy. But uh, I certainly recommend it. It opened on Netflix on Wednesday, but I still recommend that you see it in a movie theater if you can. I also wondered what you thought about Years and Years. That's a British TV series that's streaming now on HBO Max. It's not new. It stars Emma Thompson as a wild, charismatic right-wing political leader, and it follows a family in Manchester for 15 years into the future. You wrote a book about families on TV, so you're our expert here. What did you think about Years and Years? Oh, well, I wrote a, a book about the American f uh, family, which is a very different kettle of fish from the British family, about which I haven't written in that way. So uh, this is something very different. But my father did grow up in Manchester, and I'm here to tell you that Emma Thompson does a mean Mancunian accent. <laughs> as to all the rest of them. So this is a very weird and wonderful thing. As you say, it's been around for a while, but I only caught up with it almost by accident. Um, and I'm recommending that if you haven't seen it, uh, people should see it on HBO Max probably soon because season one, it's been around for quite a long time. Uh, I was pretty impressed by it. It's directed by Simon Selen-Jones, but more uh, pertinently from a really 
crackling screenplay by Russell T. Davis, who wrote the screenplay for the 2005 Doctor Who, uh, and also Queer as Folk. And so he's very, very good at uh, dramedy, um, with uh, at mixing comedy with drama. This is a movie that's set around this rather large um, Mancunian family who are headed by a matriarch, who's the grandmother of most of them and the great-grandmother of some of them. And she's played by the extraordinary actress um, Anne Reed, who if you've seen, is it Last Tango in Halifax? Last something in Halifax. Yeah, Last Tango. Yeah. She's very good at playing acerbic, outspoken people, and that's what she's doing here. Um, but also a, a woman of heart. And every year, this uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multisexual family um, that's at least three generations meets on New Year's Eve. And that's the structure on which the rest of the movie, um, excuse me, the TV series, there are six of which there are six episodes, um, is based. Um, now, the thing we have to remember, the key to all of this is that this movie is set in the terrifyingly near future. Yes. When all the things that we've been worried about for the last five years come to pass, <laughs> um, as the series opens, they're watching the TV news as they get ready for their celebration. And there is a aspiring prime minister who's played by Emma Thompson, who is this rather ignorant, um, outspoken, but very cannily populist Politi up, upcoming politician who uh, is gunning to swing the whole country over to the right, for which she has a great deal of support. If this brings back memories to you, it should. <laughs> yes. Or portents of the future. Um, and um, the, the series is really about how those things come to pass. Um, there are six episodes. One of the um, granddaughters wants to become virtual and then be downloaded. <laughs> <laughs> the series is, is about is about uh, tech, the you know technology wrecking our society really, um, and uh, it's funny and frightening and tragic, uh, but it also is an action thriller that then turns into a science fiction. <laughs> Uh, thing at the end in a very weird way. It's extremely funny, but it's also um, deals with a lot of topics that, that are plaguing Britain right now, but also really the entire uh, West. So one of them is immigration. Um, there are key aspects of the many narratives of this series that deal with um, the love between one of the sons who's played by Russell Tovey, who's a young actor. I'm seeing a lot of him. He's very weird looking. He's got, he looks like a Martian from outer space. His ears stick out very adorably. And he plays a, 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 one of the sons, uh, grandsons, um, who is gay. And although he has a husband at the beginning, he falls in love with an immigrant, a migrant from the Middle East whom he meets as part of his job. 
And that becomes very critical um, because uh, to the progress of the story, because um, one of the family actually betrays this immigrant um, as a form of revenge for a part of the plot that I can't tell you about. <laughs> and uh, it's incredibly convoluted, but it's all done so skillfully. Um, the screenplay is wonderful. The comedy is hilarious. Uh, it is in that British way, often very broad and cheeky, uh, but it also has a tragic membrane running through it that has to do um, with the immigrant, with one of the daughters. Um, and as time gets on, it also gets in some ways more improbable, uh, especially in regards to the daughter who um, gets herself all wired up so that she's really like a hologram of herself um, and then is stripped of her powers by a mogul, a tech mogul who... Um, is trying to collaborates in, in trying to destroy the society. Emma Thompson becomes prime minister um, and things go from bad to worse in ways that are in a way predictable, but by now we're so hooked on um, this family and their, the characters and their ups and downs together that that really doesn't matter. Um, Towards the end of the series, the grandmother makes a speech that um, you will appreciate as a historian. Thank you. Because she, she says that when, they, when she was young, just after the Second World War, it was a period when Britain, uh, you know, it was in terrible economic shape, but it was beginning as, as a result of a series of Labour governments to turn itself into a much more humane and compassionate society with the rise of the National Health Service and so on. And they thought that everything would be okay. And then she says, well, look at what we've done now. And then she tells the younger generation that it's all their fault hmm. because they are so entirely complicit in everything that has gone wrong, which I can't tell you about. Okay. Um, and so the question that the series is asking is how bad do things have to get before we take to the streets? Um, and will there be a revolution? Will there be resistance? And all I am willing to tell you about this is that the answer to that question takes place in a holding center for immigrants from Africa and the Middle East. Uh, along with a cliffhanger that will take us into another season, which is not present on HBO Max, but you can be sure that when it does come, I will be there watching. It's it's both delightful, terrifying, um, and uh, stretches credibility a tiny bit, but not enough to make you relax. <laughs> so uh, recommend it. Years and years on HBO Max. We have just a couple of minutes left. Do you have one more recommendation? I do. Uh, we end on a very sad note with the new film, newish film, Mass, um, which is uh, now playing. It was uh, playing in lots of theaters in LA. It's been around since October the 8th, but it's now playing at, in a number of suburban 
theatres, the Burbank Town Centre 8, Fullerton 20, um, the Americana in Glendale and the Edwards Cinemas in Irvine. So there are a lot of su suburban places that you can still see it. It's an absolutely marvellous film that is written and directed by Fran Kranz, who's actually a man. Um, he has been an actor until now, but um, was very troubled by the school shootings in Columbine and Parkland. And so he wrote a screenplay about uh, two couples who were brought together in a very bare bones church hall by the Forgiveness Project. It's a little bit like the truth from the South African Truth and Reconciliation. There, it's all talk, um, which, so if you're an action movie fan, this may not be for you, but the talk is wonderful. A terrible thing has occurred before the movie even starts, which is that the son of one of these couples has killed the son of the other couple in a school shooting quite some time ago. Uh, and lots of ha has happened since then, but they come together in this Episcopalian, Episcopal church um, to try and come to some sort of, of reconciliation and, and mutual healing. So um, what happens, um, there's a, the cast is wonderful. Uh, Jason Isaacs, who's normally also in action movies, he's a British actor who's been, he was in The Death of Stalin um, also. Um, and Martha Plimpton play one couple and the other couple is played by uh, Reed Burney and the truly marvelous character, undersung character actress, Anne Dowd, who's a very central figure in this. Um, and what's great about all of this, even though it's all talk and it's about a, a desperate tragedy that nobody should have to go through or, or survive, um, is the way the ebb and flow of the dialogue, because it, it's not, there is escalation here, but it's not all linear. It's the way people actually talk when they're under severe stress. So first of all, it's very polite. Then it starts to be belligerent. Then there's a lot of self-blame. And it keeps cascading through these things in a very uneven way. But one that is entirely plausible because you really believe in the agony of both couples. Um, Include, you know, and that includes the couple whose son carried out the murder because perhaps that's even worse. They're going to have to live with this for the rest of their lives. Um, and what it is, is about two sets of very decent people who are attempting to understand the inexplicable. So they discuss all the therapeutic um, injections that have gone on with the you know, surviving son and the, um, the troubles that were clear from the, the son who murdered. Um, but there's nothing pat about it at all. It is really about how you cannot understand evil, that it's very difficult to understand. Um, and uh, the only way really through this to an even partial healing is by the two couples telling their stories a hundred times <laughs> in very different ways. 
until they come to empathize with each other. Uh, and uh, the beauty of the movie lies in the process by which they arrive at that. It's, very, it's told very well visually as well, even though it's mostly set in one room. I'm assuming that, Fr that Frank Krantz is a theater actor because it really does play out a little bit like a, um, a, play, a stage play. Um, but I found myself absolutely profoundly moved and uh, in floods of tears by the time it was over. So that's Mass playing at some suburban theaters now. One last note, uh, these segments with Ella started out in 2020 as Virus Time TV, VTTV, we called it, or sometimes Ella Taylor's Virus Time TV, which then, of course, became ETVTTV. That was news you could use because of the COVID lockdown. We couldn't go to the movie theaters, but we could watch stuff at home. And that was her beat. Now, late in 2021, life at last is returning to something like normal. The theaters have reopened. They're filling up with people. And it's time to end our series of Virus Time TV reviews. We started in May 2020. So we've been doing this for more than a year and four months. That's about 60 shows. It's a lot. And so today we thank Ella Taylor for her work here on Virus Time TV. Really, it became an indispensable part of living with the lockdown, provided a lot of excellent ideas, some real help, and a lot of fun too. So, Ella, thank you. This has been great. Well, now I have to burst into tears all over again. Thank you, John. It's been a, a, a complete pleasure. And now I'm going to put my feet up and gaze out of the window and never watch another movie again. <laughs> That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.